You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Now, this morning, I'd like to draw our attention to a little passage called The Samaritan Woman. I know it's been done before, but blame God, he's the one who put it on my heart. I hope to do something more original, but there you go. That's how things work out. First, a little cultural and historical background. The Jewish people and the Samaritan people both considered themselves legitimate heirs to Jacob from the Old Testament. Now, the thing is, there really was only one true heir, and that was the Jewish people, but the Samaritans kind of had a chip on their shoulder about this. Instead of relying on the Old Testament texts that the Jewish people did, they only used a modified version of the Pentateuch. And instead of worshipping on the temple at Jerusalem, in defiance, they built upon Mount Gerizim their own temple, a rival temple for them to worship God at. 200 years before the events of the Samaritan woman, the Jewish people tore down and completely destroyed the temple atop Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan place of worship. So you can imagine there was a lot of hostility going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. They did not like each other. They saw each other as rivals to the heir of uh, what Jacob gave. Now, this story, the story of the Samaritan woman is set at the well of Jacob, which you can imagine is pretty significant. Here is a place that literally represents something that the the descendants of Jacob have a right to, the waters of this well of Jacob. And if you stand at the well of Jacob, you can see Mount Gerizim and the ruins of what the Jewish people destroyed only 200 years before. So you can imagine this is a pretty historically charged location for a meeting between a Jewish rabbi and a Samaritan woman to take place. So let's get into it, shall we? This kind of begins with Jesus walking from Judea to Galilee. And the most common path taken in the day for Jews was to pass through Samaria. They tend to ignore the locals, but it was a pretty commonplace path to go. Now, Jesus was alone at the time because the disciples had gone off to get food that was not seen as unclean because it's from Samaria. So they're off to get their own Jewish food while Jesus is alone and finds himself at the well of Jacob. It's about middle of the day, The heat is at its peak, which we're probably going to get a sense of later. And here comes this Samaritan woman. Now, the fact that a Samaritan woman is coming alone is really, really weird because women often came together to a well at dusk when the heat was much lower, but there was still enough light to collect water from the well. But here's this woman in the heat of the day, completely alone. And Jesus turns to that Samaritan woman and asks, will you give me a drink? Now, Right away, the Samaritan woman's kind of confused and a little put off because the Jewish people saw not only Samaritans as unclean, but they couldn't even drink from their cisterns or their buckets because it's kind of like even that scene is unclean. And she asks, you know, well, I'm a Jew and you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you possibly ask me for a drink? And Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love this because he flips it back on her. She's like, this is kind of dumb that you're asking me for a drink. And he's like, you should be asking me. And I have living water, which by the way, is a hugely significant illustration to use. Living water, God bless John, he loves his double meanings. So living water could mean fresh or flowing water, but it's laid and pregnant with significance and meaning. Let's look like in um, Jeremiah, it says, For my people have done evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. 
When speaking of the day when heaven comes, in Zechariah it says, on that day life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem. In Isaiah it says, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day you will sing, thank the Lord, praise his name, tell the nations what he has done. Let them know how mighty he is. And again in Isaiah, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that doesn't give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. So this is a really significant illustration of Jesus referring to the fact that he would give living water. But here's the catch. While John's early readers would have gotten that illustration, the Samaritans wouldn't. They only read the Pentateuch and a modified version of that. All of these were from the Hebrew books, all of these illustrations. But the Samaritans get this. They were awaiting a prophet that would come after Moses called Tehib. And Tehib, it was said, water would overflow from his buckets. So both to the Jewish people and the Samaritans, he was a joint illustration that would speak to whoever was listening at the time. Of course, unfortunately, as so often happens, she understands him literally, assuming just the simple first meaning of living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons and flocks and herds? And Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will well up in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. God bless her. She's given her best. And he tells her, go and call your husband and come back. And she says, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And suddenly the reason for her being alone is very, very clear. She's, the Jewish people and the Samaritans were equally pious. So this life that she's led would have led to her to be completely ostracized by her people. Coming to the well alone is probably the only real way she'd get clean water. Now, here's the thing. It was believed in the day that prophets could read minds, that they were psychics. So, of course, she's kind of picked up on this and says... Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is within view. But you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Wow, she is really like having a go at him. She learns as a prophet, first thing she does is challenge him on this point. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming. That's, by the way, prophetic language and would have been known to all ancient ears. So she thinks he's a prophet, says so, and he confirms it here. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We should worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks." 
The woman says, I know that a Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us, referring to the qualities described of Tahib. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Ah, oh, such a good passage. Oh my goodness. The Bible is so full of stuff. No wonder Stuart's stuck on Acts for so long. There's so much goodness. You could spend forever on just one passage. But this is the thing. There's just so many wonderful themes in here. Jesus' love pouring out for the Gentiles. It is so wonderful to see that. And the superiority of Jesus' living water flowing out freely. And its superiority to every other kind of water. But I want to focus this morning on the characteristics of Jesus Christ displayed here in this passage. There is some really cool stuff in here that might be missed. First of all, Jesus shatters so many earthly man-made boundaries and risks so much potential understanding by others. Let's just look at this situation for a second. First of all, the Jews never talked to other Samaritans. They were seen as unclean from birth. You couldn't drink their water, couldn't eat their food. They were just scum. And here Jesus is very casually talking to them. Secondly, she was a woman. Now, oh, I love women, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going somewhere bad with this. But the Jews, the Jewish rabbis especially, never talked to women, especially alone in these sorts of circumstances, because it could be seen really bad and reflect badly on them. They don't want to be dodgy. They don't want to be seen as really suspicious, kind of possibly perverted rabbis. They need to keep their image pure to communicate and send the right message. But here, Jesus is putting himself in a position which could be very easily misconstrued by other people. People might go, oh, okay, well, I'm starting to see what kind of rabbi he is. He doesn't care. He'd rather, he cares more for this woman than how it might appear. And on top of that, she was a great sinner. She'd lived a life that obviously led her to be cast out from every community she'd known. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He just cares about her and engaging with her. The thing is, this isn't even an isolated circumstance. You can't write it off and go, oh, but you know, Jesus was you know, obviously alone with this woman, so it was fine. It was a very personal, intimate moment. The disciples come back from getting their Jewish food, and they see Jesus there, and God bless them, they don't say anything, which is actually a sign of tremendous respect that they don't question their teacher, because they see Jesus and they trust in his character by saying nothing. Very, very interesting display by them. Even the phrase when she goes, I have no husband, to John's original readers, this would have been a... <laughs> because when I, saying, I have no husband, could be seen as a flirtation or a proposition. This would have made a lot of rabbis feel super uncomfortable because, oh boy, this looks really, really bad, Jesus. Just cut your ties and go. But he doesn't care. He goes, you are right when you say you have no husband. He cuts straight through the ambiguity and isn't even phased by the potential misinterpretation of what's going on. He cares about the truth, about her. He shatters cultural boundaries, gender boundaries, racial boundaries. He just wants to get through to the soul of the person through it all. He, it's almost as though he cares more about rightness and truthfulness than external perception. Quite remarkable. And, and there's one other detail which we tend to forget in our comfortable modern society which is that Jesus said and did everything perfectly and they still hung him up on a cross. It didn't matter that he said everything just right. He said all the right responses to this Samaritan woman and in every other situation, did all the right things, conducted himself correctly, they still made up slander, 
They still misconstrued his words and twisted it to make him seem like an unseemly, lying, deceitful character. It's going to happen anyway. What matters is what, whether what we are doing is true and right and honoring God. Not how people are inevitably going to want to read into certain actions a certain way. Jesus was uncompromising in breaking those boundaries to do what was right. The next point is that Jesus abounds in grace in the face of extreme antagonism. This isn't a fairy tale here. <laughs> She's tearing into him. This isn't one of those examples where someone comes up and goes, Jesus, I immediately see that you're completely fantastic. I submit all of myself to you and I do whatever you say. Go ahead. This woman is fighting him every step of the way. Every exchange is designed to point, drive a wedge of division between them. The first thing she really says is to emphasize the division of race. Well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I thought us Samaritans were super unclean. So why ask me for a drink, huh? The next division she tries to drive is based on belief. You think you're better than Jacob, our father, who gave us this well? She's trying to emphasize that they're the legitimate heirs of Jacob, not you Jews. Jesus doesn't care. It washes past him like it's nothing. And then she tries to drive a historical wedge. We used to worship at this temple. Look at that temple. The ruins, the ones you people destroyed, this is what your people did to us. It just washes past Jesus like it's nothing. Anyone who's really tried to speak to people from a different background of belief, culture, identity, sexuality, whatever. Most of you have encountered people like this. People who are determined that when you just want to engage in a dialogue of understanding and love, they'll try to drive wedges, try to emphasize all of the things that are wrong, what, what your people have done, what you're probably like, what you believe versus what I believe. Yet Jesus here models this incredible display of what grace looks like in the face of remarkable antagonism. It's inspiring. But it comes to the next point, which shows exactly like how. I mean, it could have devolved into a series of edifications and corrections. Like, well, that's a, actually, that's not historically accurate. I mean, I, I've just got to prepare this quick 20-minute lecture to correct you, and then we can get to the real point. He, he doesn't. He just focuses on what really, really matters, doesn't let it get caught up in that drag. And I don't know about you guys, but I've fallen into that trap a lot. And it's really cool to see this model shown right here in this little microcosm. The third point is that he takes a firm position on matters, but cuts right through to the heart of truth. This is really amazing. The Samaritan woman raises the subject of Jacob's heirs. Now, You'd think if Jesus cared about the soul and wanted to make peace, that what he would do is kind of skirt around that or just remain neutral or focus on something else. Do you notice what he does? He says, you, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. He chooses not an imagined or new third side to an argument. He chooses one side on a two-sided argument. This was an extremely sensitive, hot-button topic in their culture, which caused a, a lot of anger and pain and just hostility to each other. He chose a side. First of all, that's really interesting, that he doesn't remain neutral or try to dodge the issue. But here's the real key. He doesn't leave it there. He cuts through to the heart 
of the division, where a time is coming when you will neither worship in the ruins of that mountain or even in the ones the Jews hold high, but in spirit and in truth. And suddenly it reveals the initial disagreement and conflict for what it is because it cuts straight to the heart. It's just profoundly wise. The fact that he holds a position but doesn't stop there. He seems to hold to truth. He doesn't just remain neutral. He doesn't skirt around it. It's consistent all across Jesus' ministry, which is really awesome. Like Every time the Pharisees throw a question at Jesus or really challenge him with something hard, you notice he never gives the answer you expect? He'll, he'll, he'll come up with something, an answer that almost ignores what the question's trying to do and illuminates everything about the subject for what it is by cutting straight to the heart. Love is not telling everybody they are right. Peacemaking is not pretending red is blue and blue is red for the sake of the colorblind. But grace and wisdom are needed in the face of confusion and falsehood. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs everything you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. Wisdom is supreme. Jesus has the wisdom of the Spirit. He's hearing his Father and allowing that understanding to cut through those divisions. So Jesus isn't phased by the boundaries of man, worldly boundaries, cultural gender, whatever. He just cares about the truth and the people. So he's not, he shatters boundaries boldly. He abounds in grace when faced with hostility. And he cuts uncompromisingly to the heart of truth. All of those in tandem. Isn't that amazing? The thing is, there's a really important point here. Now, these are all the characteristics of Jesus, and they are wonderful, inspiring things to model our lives after. But we're the Samaritan woman. We're not Jesus. This isn't a parable where people directly represent something, but we are literally. Like, I don't know how many people there are in this hall who are descent from Jewish, the Jewish line, but most of us, I'm betting, here aren't. We're the Samaritan woman. This is the first recorded occasion where Jesus spoke to a non-Jew in the Bible. Jesus reaching out in all of her hostility, her rebelliousness, her arrogance, her uncleanliness. He doesn't care. This is what the grace of God looks like. And even when we were in our rebellion, in our hostility, in our stubbornness, in our mono-focused minds, Jesus loved anyway. And he poured everything out, flowing of living water. The least we can do is echo that Christ-like heart for our brothers and sisters who don't yet know him. Not because we're just copycatting Jesus, but because he has modeled it to us. We are the Samaritan woman. Isn't God wonderful? Let's pray. Lord, Thank you so much for your amazing character modeled in this little story here and echoed 
all throughout the scriptures. Lord, may you work in us by the power of your spirit that day by day we may be able to pour ourselves out to you more and more. Rejoice in you, Lord, and see how it is we should love. Lord, imbue us with the wisdom of your spirit as you did Solomon, that we can see through the conflicts and divisions of the people all across the earth, wherever they're from, that we can love them exactly the way you did, that we can speak to them with the words that transcend our worldly wisdom. Lord, may your glory be done through and through, and may we, your people, do you honor and bring you joy through our actions, through our thoughts, and through our love for all men, women, and children all over the world. Praise your holy name, Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.